you know, with how absolutely fucking insane things have gotten, uh, I just find it more and more important than ever to genuinely thank those who continue to support this podcast. You guys are the reason this podcast keeps going. It's grassroots support from you guys that empowers me and allows me to come on here and bring on great guests, talk about the things that I know that you guys want to listen to because the whole reason I started this podcast three years ago was to talk about the things that I wanted to talk about and that I wanted to listen about that weren't anywhere in the mainstream media. And so I've just kind of assumed by process of deduction that the people that listen to this, and there's tens of thousands of people now that listen to every episode, you guys are interested in the same shit. And you're either not getting the answers the way that you want it, or you're not hearing these topics discussed in the mainstream media, and that's why we're here. And we only, and by we, I mean me, my microphone, and my beer, (laughs) we only survive because of your support. So if you like the podcast and you're considering, for instance, purchasing gold and silver bullion... Check out my friends over at JM Bullion. They're big supporters of the podcast. They're the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. They have great uh, inventory, always in stock. I never have an issue with their site not having things when a lot of other sites go down, when a lot of physical and uh, physical silver and gold can't be bought at times of panic like March of this year, April of this year. JM Bullion still had stuff on their site when other sites didn't have inventory. They turn around my orders very quickly. They ship them next day. They've done over $3 billion in sales over the last 10 years. They're a reputable company. QTR podcast listeners have their own saleswoman at JM Bullion. So maybe if you haven't bought Bullion before, you have questions, you don't want to do it all online, you can always email Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y at jmbullion.com. She's there just for you guys, just for my listeners. So if you want a more direct, uh, personalized experience or you just have questions, Reach out to her, and for uh, orders over $199, she'll give you free shipping as well if you just tell her you're a QTR podcast listener, and uh, she'll make sure that you get taken care of. I've gotten great feedback uh, from some people that have worked with her, so I'm very happy to recommend JM Bullion, and I want to thank them for their commitment to the podcast, and I hope that you guys show them some love the way that I am doing it. Uh, Also, I want to shout out my dear friend Sang Lucci over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room, the Sanglucci Master Course, and the 3LT Playbook. Sanglucci has been a supporter of the podcast and my personal friend uh, for some time now. He's been my personal friend for much longer, but he has supported the podcast now for a while, and uh, his support is extraordinarily appreciated. The Sanglucci Steam Room is a -a one-of-a-kind piece of software to help track flow coming into the illiquid options market. It shows you where the big money is going, basically. And that can be very lucrative information if used the right way. Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, Charlie Bathgate, these guys were doing quote-unquote unusual options activity before it became popular. I think their piece of software, the Steam Room, is the best that's been out there. Uh, They have been working on it, updating it. Uh, for a decade now, so they have a years-long head start on a lot of other companies that are trying to track unusual options activity. Uh, You know, Lucci's specialty is in tape reading and market psychology. The guy has taken his knocks. He's done very well for himself over a long period of time. You can always listen to his story. I've talked to him numerous times on my podcast. Lucci also offers the 3LT playbook, which are the three rules that he used to become a seven-figure trader, and his Sang Lucci Master Course, 
one of which I think just wrapped up in November. I think he does like one a year or two a year, but when they come around, they're well worth it. We're talking about dozens of intensive lessons uh, on everything he's learned about the markets delivered in a no-bullshit fashion. So uh, it's not going to be pompous or pretentious, and it doesn't matter what I'm learning about. I can't take pompousness and pretentiousness. I'm going to have trouble focusing if... uh, if I have somebody hawking their book in the middle of class like a pen professor did when I was taking a, an accounting class there at one point. And then the same professor, by the way, who was talking about the futures market, I went up and asked him something about contango and backwardation and the, the relationship between the two. And he had never even heard of the two terms. And I was like, dude, you wrote a book on the futures market? Like, what, what are you talking about? That's a different story for a different day. Anyways, support my friend Luigi. Support Jay and Bullion. Their links are in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my buddy Pete Hedgetus at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a one-of-a-kind day trading and investing community that offers watch lists. It offers investor education. They trade red and green markets. Great place to get market ideas and surround yourself with other like-minded individuals. Pete started The Trader's Path because he got tired of nonsense, bullshit, lying, and general scumbaggery of normal day trading services. The link to all those services are in my podcast description. And you can talk to any of those proprietors and tell them I sent you and they will make sure that you get a deal. If you want a free trial or whatever, tell Lucci I sent you. He'll make sure you get taken care of. Before we get started, I also want to shout out my friends at Corvus Gold. You've been with me for a long time. I appreciate it. My dear friends at Investors Live, Investors Underground, whatever your fucking thing's called, Nate. (laughs) Sorry, buddy. Traders for a Cause, my favorite charity. Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer. He's going to be on later this month, and that motherfucker can talk, so strap in. Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, thank you guys for your continued support, and some of my latest patrons I mentioned this year. Uh, Patrons dried up a little bit, but for those of you that continue to drop in, I know 2020 was a shit year. Your support means everything now. Michael Kahn, Matt Weaver, Susan Basil. Uh, Robert Bloom, thank you, my friend. Jenna Tolls and BBMT. Jesse Dwayne, Kyle Funk, Michael Towns, thank you for your support. Jenna Tolls mentioned you twice. Why? Because it's 7.30 in the morning and I have no clue what's going on. How about some patrons that have been with me for a minute and we're going to get started after that. Roberto Walter, John Bergmans and Kirk Woodcock, thank you, my brother. I appreciate it. Michael Embley and Sheer Luck is still in the house. Man, Chris Bede, again, I want to thank you so much, brother. Max Mulvihill, you too, man. Been uh, enjoying talking to you, the the little bits and pieces I talked to you on Twitter. Andre Gavarlov, Lloyd Waldo, uh, and Vinny Scarcella, thank you. Gains on gains, still in the house. And finally, Fred Rush, Kent, Taylor Kenny, I see you. I appreciate your continued support. You know, it is always seven, six, seven, eight minutes in the beginning of this podcast to shout out my patrons, to give you guys the lowdown on what I'm about, and to talk about whatever I want to. But I always promise no mid-roll ads. That's my least favorite thing. And now my favorite podcast, Peter Schiff, is doing them. So 30 minutes into listening about the macro economy, I'm getting sold a hair loss product. Which, by the way, I'm not sure. I don't know if it's targeted advertising because I am balding. But <laughs> And... uh I've made a commitment to never put shit in the middle of an interview because when I am listening to interviews, I don't like that. So here's the disclaimers for today's discussion we're going to have. You already know about the three drink minimum. 
which is the most important part. Today's discussion is going to be an open-minded discussion about all types of open-ended current events. We're going to do our best to uh, try to couch things in a manner that's not going to get me banned from every social media platform. But on the other hand, we want to really have a open discussion about everything that's going on. You know, censorship is a problem. It's not only a problem because of the authoritarian nature of it, but also because it squelches uh, dialogue. And dialogue between people who disagree uh, is really what helps move things forward. So today we're going to cover some things from an angle you may not hear in the mainstream media, and I'm going to disclaim right up front that I don't support breaking the law ever. This show never condones breaking the law. This show is a advocate for equality under the law, and this show is an advocate for the United States Constitution and for abiding by the Constitution and the law. And we're having a discussion today with the best interest of the people of our country in mind, with a focus on liberty, with a focus on personal responsibility, with a focus on personal freedom, and all we're trying to do is get to the bottom of what's going on and be ahead of the eight ball for benefit of those who are smart enough, even if they disagree with where we're coming from, to entertain what it is that we will bring to the table today. Happy to have with me today... Whitney Webb, independent journalist and writer and researcher for The Last American Vagabond and kicking ass with her own uh, website, which is unlimitedhangout.com. She does her own podcast. Uh, She is at underscore Whitney Webb on Twitter. You can find her somewhere linked in my feed probably over the last 24 to 48 hours if you're looking for her. Uh, She is an award-winning independent journalist, one of my favorite guests. Hello, Whitney. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. We had some connectivity issues this morning, which is why um, we uh, we don't sound perfect, but we sound good enough. So we're going to forge forward. <laughs> Perhaps we're being censored this morning by the powers that be. Who knows? Maybe. Anything's possible these days. Uh, crazy world. So could be. The last time we talked was in September of 2020, and... A whole hell of a lot has gone down since then, so I figured we would just reel it back to uh, September and November and start from there and first cover um, your thoughts on the election, the 2020 election, and uh, and where you stand on what happened in the aftermath. Well, um, a lot definitely happened. Well, you know, actually, I, I mean, even going farther back, I think I was on uh, probably a year ago in January 2020, and I started talking about uh, probably in the latter half of that podcast about how U.S. intelligence agent uh, intelligence agencies, front companies, and also Israeli intelligence. Um, had basically gamed out scenarios whereby the 2020 election would be used to totally destroy Americans' faith in the electoral system, or rather in the democratic system and the integrity of elections and whatnot, uh, back over the course of 2019. And uh, wow, that totally happened, uh, because no matter what happens now going forward, regardless of what's happened um, in more more recent days, I mean, there is really no way that you're going to have what has been up to this point Trump's base 
you know, millions of people uh, believe or trust in the election system, at least when it comes to national elections or presidential elections moving forward. And what's also, but I mean, there's different aspects of this election fraud thing um, that went on that that I think are so totally crazy. And a lot of things didn't get talked about at all. Um, And I think, um, well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack. I mean, (laughs) going back that far, there's a lot to unpack about everything that happened, especially considering um, recent events that have sort of pushed the things that we're developing over the past couple of months into what is basically now a very fast-moving whirlwind of craziness, but um, some things that happened after the election that are very concerning that didn't get enough coverage. uh, One is that Microsoft um, basically said that in 2024, all national elections are going to be run on their software, Microsoft Election Guard, uh, which is very disconcerting. I wrote about Election Guard in 2019. Uh, It was basically developed Um, by a contractor for the U.S. military, specifically for DARPA. Um, It's not as secure as they say. The results can be manipulated fairly easily. It's like an illusion of a better system. And, of course, do we really want to trust Microsoft um, with our election system, uh, considering all of the other stuff they've, you know, been accused of or found out doing or their executives uh, have done in the years since. I mean, that's definitely, I mean, talk about concerns about election manipulation going forward. And it was just really amazing to not even hear mention um, of that, um, you know, really from anywhere in the media, even though you had Microsoft uh, executives saying that that was going to be the case soon. And of course they have partnerships uh, for that with most voting machine manufacturers by now. So it's really interesting to have seen that story slip under the radar. Um, and there's a couple other things, too. So while people like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani were, you know, having these press conferences and a lot of times were just total shit shows, <laughs> uh, really, uh, you know, there were cases where it looks like um, there were tech companies or certain parts of the voting process that were manipulated, but they didn't get brought up by these sort of MAGA legal figures at all. And one of those companies I ended up writing about, it's called Periscript. Um, Their software was used to verify the signatures of mail-in ballots in a lot of uh, some of the most populated counties of the country and also some of the most contested in the last election. Um, It had never been used for elections before. It had never been tested. Um, And a lot of aspects about the software is very shady. This company um, has ties to Lockheed Martin, which, of course, was very involved in uh, those uh, cyber reason simulations I talked about last January about election chaos uh, back in 2019 and, or in the early part of 2020. Um, and also the head of Periscript is uh, a longtime uh, critic. He's actually Russian. But he's a longtime critic of Trump uh, and a donor to the Democrats, Clintons, whatever. So it's pretty amazing they you know, would gloss over a company like that entirely. And, and focus exclusively on certain uh, aspects of that story. I mean, to me, a lot of the election fraud stuff was focused uh, in terms of the people trying to lead the charge against it. We're basically treating a lot of what was going on in that situation in a limited hangout way, um, I would argue, because they would bring up some valid points but mix it with like things that were really silly um, and you know, sort of just discredit the whole thing or uh, do the press conferences in a super weird way, like that whole four seasons thing that happened. You know, I mean, I don't think, <laughs> right? I don't 
think these people cared about winning, like Sidney Powell and Giuliani. I mean, they were just sort of, I think, stringing Trump supporters along uh, this whole time, being like, oh, there's going to be something that comes out. There's going to be this thing that gets exposed or gets revealed. But, I mean, they were really half-assing it, I think, if you ask my honest opinion, because, like, how do you make so many gaffes like that? Or, or um, you know, uh, I mean, do you, well, what do you think about that? Well, I thought the Four Seasons total landscaping thing was one of the funniest fucking things I've ever seen. I mean, to, to, to obviously fuck up, right? They obviously thought they were booking the Four Seasons in Philadelphia. And I, to the best of my knowledge, there's definitely not a Four Seasons downtown in Philadelphia. So I know there's a Ritz-Carlton, but I don't think there's a Four Seasons unless there's one outside the city. So, and then to do it and then to just own it and, you know, to tweet out on the presidential account, press conference coming today at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, like, that's exactly how we planned it, you know, I just thought was fucking hilarious, especially because it's like, it's in this, I think it's in this part of Northeast Philly, right by like uh, Aramingo Ave in 95, which is just, uh, (laughs) it's a great area, I love the people up there, but it's not the place I would hold a presidential press conference, no offense to, uh, (laughs) My friends that are fucking welders and pipe fitters and plumbers up there. But, uh, yeah, I I think, you know, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on how much take away the the Microsoft angle, take away how, how much of this can be solved by adding transparency to elections going forward. How much of this problem can be solved by simply making it clearer? For example, these Georgia runoffs that just happened, Whitney. They there was a county in Georgia that said at 11 p.m. Well, we're taking off. We'll be back at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning to do the rest of this. And it's just like, have you learned nothing from what happened in September? Like, aren't, aren't the people at the very least entitled to election results that night? And by the way, even you know, even with that, aren't they entitled to more transparency on exactly what's coming from where and who's overseeing things? Do you think that could solve part of the problem? Yeah, well, I, I think to an extent, sure. But let's keep in mind, too, that those type of issues have exist, existed long before the 2020 election, um, as did longstanding issues with the security of electronic voting machines, um, you know, which was also not really discussed either, or past issues of election manipulation. Um, you know, for example, like 2004, Bush's re-election, what happened in Ohio that year, for example. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, you know, uh, issues that have been really apparent in the U.S. election system for 20 years, but we haven't had a, a real national discussion about any of that. And what we have now is that cons- any sort of concern about election fraud has been highly politicized, whether it's about the 2020 election or, or potentially anything going forward. And now we're having, you know, these people on the uh, in, in the Democrats basically saying, like, if you question election results, you know, you're promoting violence and things like that, which is uh, obviously a bad uh, <laughs> position to have, in my opinion, because, I mean, fraud, uh, you know, uh, the manipulation of elections can be used to benefit either side uh, or any candidate, really, uh, you know, depending. So it's definitely, I mean, if the issue is integrity of elections, that doesn't, uh, that isn't a part, that shouldn't be a partisan issue. It should be something that is addressed. Right. Uh, by everyone because it doesn't, you know, really matter what side you're on if you want um, the integrity 
the majority of the population anyway to trust in the the integrity of the system. But I think we've reached a point now where more than half of the country uh, will not do so unless there are major changes that I don't really see a, a Biden administration or a Democrat-controlled House or Senate really being interested in addressing. And we have to keep in mind, too, the Democratic Party, particularly in the last several years, has essentially fused with Silicon Valley a lot of the top executives at the DNC, their chief technology officers, their chief security officers, uh, what have you, are former executives of Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, all of these big companies. Um, and it's, um, you know, <laughs> that's the Definitely not good, and they're not going. You know, if Silicon Valley, like Microsoft or whatever, or or these other companies want to are, are moving to be more involved in the election system, and they fused more with the Democrats than they have, you know, with the Republicans. Let's say in in that sense. I mean, that's a. Uh, I don't really see you know a Biden administration or a Democratic controlled Congress being very interested in the just. In, in fixing those types of issues, specifically where Silicon Valley is being accused of manipulation because it's benefiting them right now. Yeah, and this is a point I always bring up when I talk about 9-11, I talk about Building 7, is that, you know, the idea of raising questions about a major event in American history, the idea of seeking further answers and putting it to the government to make it so that, you know, we have an answer that, works beyond a reasonable doubt or to a certain threshold. And I'm not arguing one way or another now. I'm trying to make the point that I, I always kind of thought that there was a certain degree of patriotism to that. I, I think that, you know, kind of questioning the answers that were given uh, by the government is something that many of the founding fathers of the country would have supported and, and set the republic well, up yeah. in, right, <laughs> in, in a manner that, that that would be front and center as part of our civic duty as patriots, as people that love the country, as people that want the best for the country. And so the idea that we're going to have this election in 2020, which regardless of the results is going to be unlike any other election we've ever had, right? It happened in the middle of a pandemic. The election turnout was a record. uh, And we sprayed the country with these mail-in ballots in a manner that had never been done before, not even close to being done before. So the idea that raising questions or raising objections um, is some type of terrorism or whatever you want to label it, I think is ridiculous. It's insane. Now, having said that. Awful. Right. Having said that, I do believe there needs to be evidence. There has to be evidence. There has to be evidence enough for courts to want to pursue the matter. And, you know, there is a legal way to pursue these things. And if the evidence was blindingly overwhelming or, you know, was anything but circumstantial, you know, going and saying, hey, there are electronic voting companies that, you know, to some degree, there's a black box there. We, I put my ballot in. I don't know if it's getting counted. I don't know if it's going to the my county's total or my state's total. You just don't know. There, there's a certain degree of faith you have to put into the system. But short of direct evidence that there's wrongdoing, I, I think it's difficult then to to really make a substantiated and lengthy challenge, which is uh, unfortunate. Um, but I do agree with what many people in Congress have said too, that you know we the least we could have done is a little bit more of an audit to help try to shore up the confidence of the electorate. What do you think? 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, all of this was done very carefully, and I think specifically on the Trump side, um, they didn't really have any real intention of, of really going there. Uh, because the way they handled that legal case was just so, I mean, like, like you were saying, they, they basically didn't present evidence. And there's, there's cases where they could have, you know, companies that could have brought up, I mean, it was just so focused on Dominion, right? And you look at, you know, Dominion and their ties to like the Clinton Foundation, right? That was done um, to be so that those voting machines would be used in sort of like, um, uh, in, in countries after the U.S. had intervened in their government. Right. So as an example, I don't know, like there's a change of government in Ukraine in 2014 and then the voting machines that come in after that U.S. backed, uh, you know, regime change operation are, you know, Dominion or something like that. Um, you know, that's sort of how that project, the Clinton Foundation that was done with the Dominion voting systems was like set up. Right. But, you know, it, so then it would be pretty easy if you wanted to argue it right that. Uh, these uh, voting systems have been used, you know, in other countries uh, to advance U.S. policy agendas and sort of like un undermine sovereignty in other countries, what have you, can be manipulated, blah, 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 right? But none of that got brought into that conversation. Instead, we had what Sidney Powell talk about, the ghost of Hugo Chavez and stuff like this, like programming, uh, you know, Dominion uh, stuff so that he could, you know, uh, it, it be on the grave, manipulate, manipulate U.S. elections and stuff like that. Like, that's why I, I was saying earlier I think they sort of approached it um, in a limited hangout way. But, you know, this whole thing, I would argue, um, if you want to look at this as a broader op, which is how I sort of look at this, um, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, I think a lot of those press conferences and all of that was to make the rational thinking Americans sort of look at these election fraud accusations and think this is ridiculous, right? Whereas the people that were really invested and really – uh, you know, uh, really hardcore wanted Trump to win or really hated Biden or whatever were more likely to sort of, you know, buy into that. But I think it was just, you know, helping to string Trump people along and, and polarizing debate on, on election fraud and also making, you know, that uh, claims, uh, effort, alleged efforts to fix our election system or, or audit the election just look silly, right? Yeah, and I think... The I think the action that Trump himself took with claiming there's massive fraud without being able to directly substantiate it with direct evidence. And I'm not saying that there there aren't things going on behind the scenes that we don't know about, but to come out and to stoke the fire of your base by saying it is 100 percent a rigged an election and the results are 100 percent fake without really being able to directly substantiate it. I mean. Look, I'm a short seller, right? I'm a professional financial skeptic. We have to be very careful not to make claims about things where we don't have direct evidence to back it up because otherwise you get sued and you lose and then you got a fucking big problem. And so that's kind of how I approach life in general. When you're talking about something like this, you know, and you talk about what happened uh, last week with the uh, riots on Capitol Hill. I think a part of that is a direct result of his rhetoric that the election was stolen, regardless of whether or not that's true. But you can't do that. You can't go out there and say that without having the evidence to back it up. I think that becomes, you know, not that the situation would have been any different, 
if if he had direct evidence of that, if he said, "Look, I, we've got it. We found it in a deposition here. We found the, you know, we found the software that's doing it. We found this. We found that." I think the situation would have been similar, but I think that is really what's. I think that's what's empowering the left to lash back out yeah. the way that they have in what I think is a very hypocritical fashion. Right? You have. What happened yeah, last week? Authoritarian, right? And you have what happened last week, which is essentially you had you know people at the Capitol that made their way into the Capitol one way or another, and we can talk about that in a second. Uh, you know, one person tragically lost their lives, or a couple people I think tragically lost their lives, and uh, property was damaged and property was stolen, and the DC seemed to be woefully unprepared from a security standpoint. And it was, in some ways, egged on by the president. Now, compare that. And and the result is the left is calling for expulsions from Congress, from certain Congress people. They're calling for impeachment of the president. They're calling for these draconian social media lockdowns. They're banning discussion on Reddit and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Now, compare that to what happened this summer, which was dozens of other protests that some of which right. some of which turned into riots, many of which were egged on by liberal politicians or condoned outright by liberal politicians, billions of dollars in property damage, many human lives lost, innocent bystanders assaulted, and that was condoned. That was condoned as hey, we have the ideological high ground so this is just, you know, this is the wheels of progress turning and it's okay. Yet from the other ideology you get this one instance last week and all of a sudden it's Katie bar the door. We got to lock everything down. And so that type of hypocrisy, I think, is very dangerous. What are your thoughts? No, I definitely agree. It's hypocrisy. But I want to go back um, to, to the election for a second. I don't think anyone high ranking on Trump's team was actually serious about challenging the election. I think they were setting up this narrative and intentionally stringing along and egging on Trump's base so that there could be some sort of momentum to create an event like that that happened on Wednesday. And I can explain more about that uh, later. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But basically last March, uh, DHS at a hearing that no one paid attention to because that's when COVID really hit, right, um, in the U.S. basically announced that there was going to be a pivot um, of all of the FBI task forces that had previously basically created entrapment plots for Muslim Americans for the war on terror, that they were switching to um, right-leaning uh, domestic uh, terrorists, right? Um, or uh, And that they were going to uh, pivot towards that. And then not long after that, for example, you have the Governor Whitmer plot, for example, uh, get set up. Uh, it, it comes out later. The ringleader of that is an FBI informant who was paid almost 30 grand to set that up. Um, and of course, how the media covered that they were framing them as, you know, domestic terrorists, whatever. But it was an FBI entrapment plot, essentially, not unlike a lot of those that have happened um, in the post 9-11 era that have been used to justify uh, crackdowns on Muslim American communities or interventions abroad and what have you. So it's very significant that we had that pivot announced uh, last year, the national security state was basically going to pivot to a war on domestic terror. And, uh, of course, in the aftermath of what happened Wednesday, we now have um, uh, Biden uh, and lots of other politicians calling uh, what happened on Wednesday 
uh, insurrection, a siege, sedition, a coup. These are all very dangerous terms, especially when we can get into this too. Uh, the the dynamics of what went on, how those people got into the Capitol, uh, the involvement of uh, the lack of law enforcement, but also the uh, involvement in law enforcement of letting those people into the Capitol, taking selfies with them and all of this stuff, right? So um, the way it's being talked about now is is very significant, but also um, a, Wall Street journal, a Wall Street Journal article talked about how not only had Biden labeled uh, the people that participated in Wednesday's events as domestic terrorists, but one of the first priorities of his administration is going to be a new domestic terror law that will basically be the Patriot Act, but even more focused on the domestic. Um, the most likely um, bill that that will be based on is a bill that Adam Schiff authored like a year or two ago and introduced into Congress that I think is called uh, Confronting Domestic Terrorism Act or something to that effect. Um, and Basically, uh, that law was heavily criticized during the time a couple years ago because it would effectively criminalize all dissent against the government. So it's very interesting to see all of those things taking place over the course of last year. And we had various people, of course, this didn't get a lot of attention because of COVID, right? Um, but various high-ranking ex and current government officials calling for new domestic terrorism statutes um, all over the course of last year. Um, and new uh, terrorism offenses and all of this stuff. So it's very important to pay attention to that rhetoric. And it's worth pointing out that the protests that happened over the summer, we have the Republicans, including the Trump administration, passed various laws that are now being used to target the Trump supporters uh, that participated in Wednesday's events. So, for example, um, an executive order that Trump put out, I believe, in September in relation to uh, the protests last summer are being used now to uh, charge people that uh, entered the Capitol with up to like 10 years in prison, whereas they wanted to face those charges before. And if you look at the different, different uh, legislative moves and executive orders that have gone on, it's really easy to argue that both Democrats and Republicans have spent the last several years setting the foundation for a new domestic war on terror that, in my opinion, will be swung around to target right and left whenever convenient. Because, you know, right now we have, you know, this focus on this uh, on the so-called right in domestic terror. But um, it's very easy uh, to have that turned around and be about Antifa for people of the opposite political persuasion, right? So basically we have a situation where the bipartisan national security state, because remember Biden is backed by like neocons and like Mitt Romney and establishment uh, Republicans too. Both parties have been setting up the foundation for this. And they don't care what happens to our civil liberties or any of this. I mean, they, they made that very clear with COVID uh, last year and are, you know, obviously have really since uh, the post 9-11 era. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot going on to this election. And as I mentioned earlier in 2019, U.S. intelligence was talking about this, how this was basically this is going to be the last real U.S. election and that, you know, no one is ever going to believe in the integrity of elections after that. I would argue that's because that's what they want. They want people in the U.S. to uh, get used to a new style of government that we will see come to fruition most likely during the Biden administration. Um, and that, you know, oh, we can't have democracy because half of the country uh, are domestic terrorists. I mean, that's basically, you know, you could argue now what a lot of establishment lefties that watch like MSNBC, uh, you know, are saying to an extent or they're calling for really draconian authoritarian measures to be applied against the opposite side because they're 
all, uh, you know, really emotional and triggered about, you know, what happened on Wednesday, well, or, or rather the coverage of that and what they've been told about that particular event. Yeah, just just to go back to what I said earlier, I just find it interesting how much outrage. And again, I'm for equality under the law. I'm for not breaking the law. I'm not, you know, I do not support property damage. I obviously don't support, uh, you know, uh, any type of breaking the law. But it is interesting to see how that was handled by the media versus how the protests this summer were handled. Two different ideologies, two different causes. And, And actually, the one unifying factor, Whitney, is that it's proof. Somebody asked me this week, what do you think about what happened on Capitol Hill? I said, you know what? Take a step back and try to look at that objectively with what happened this summer. And it's proof that pretty much a large portion of the country, whether you're on the left or the right, appears to be disenfranchised. I mean, if you separate the reasons for those protests, the one umbrella that they both fall under, whether you're a Black Lives Matter protester or you're, you know, one of these stop to steal people is you don't feel like you're being fucking listened to. You don't feel like you have a voice and you feel like you're getting the shit end of the stick from the government. And and that's the umbrella that they both fall under. I, I, I said this week, you know, do you think that the, this is kind of fertile ground for a third party maybe emerging? Or do you think that that's just impossible in this country? I think, I think if, uh, things weren't so crazy right now that could be possible i honestly think it's too late i think the time for a third party uh was really uh you know 2016 (laughs) or or something to that effect because where we are now is that we're about to face a biden administration that is just um i am really worried about what they're going to try to do um they are backed essentially now by most uh politicians in both parties for example now we're seeing you know uh, legislators that are allied with that have been allied with the trump wing i guess you say of the republican party being increasingly isolated as the president himself becomes super isolated um um, following Wednesday's events and, and all of that. So we're really having a, a uniparty emerge that is, um, you know, openly fused with, with these Silicon Valley uh, entities. And of course, Silicon Valley um, basically is dominating and running uh, the Pentagon's modernization plan and also the modernization plans of the entire U.S. intelligence community. Um, So, you know, I am just very concerned about the influence that these Silicon Valley oligarchs have acquired, not just um, in the private sector, but also now in the public sector with, you know, a majority of of national politicians, Congress, right, in both parties uh, backing a lot of this uh, agenda. I mean, it's very disconcerting um, in, in, a, in a huge way. And I think Biden, uh, the Biden administration is going to, uh, you know, they're going to move first with that national face mandate, but then after that, they're going to start locking stuff down, I think, in the country. And I think also we're going to see an increase in interventions abroad because you're having people like Victoria Newland being put back in the State Department I mean, that didn't even make a blip on most people's radar. I mean, she was basically one of the key people behind that engineered coup in Ukraine in 2014. Um, And, you know, is the wife of ARC neocon Bob Kagan. And she's been put back in the State Department. 
where she was involved in a lot of criminal activity during the Obama administration. Don't you think people on the right would even complain about that? I mean, everyone is so distracted. They have us so distracted and pointing the, fig- the, the finger at the other person instead of, you know, if you actually look at what happened last year, right? I mean, the average American got royally fucked by the U.S. government and billionaires made more money than ever and they are laughing at all of us why, you know, us little people are pointing the finger at the person with the wrong lawn sign in their yard saying, you're the threat to democracy and right. all of this stuff. When mm. the real threat to democracy are these crazy people who are taking us all to town and have, and have set up these, you know, uh, social media things that are basically corrals. So we all go online and collectively scream about how mad we are and we don't actually do anything in the in the real world and we become dependent on it for political discourse and they control it. And so now they're censoring it and people are like, where do I go? What do I do? I mean, this, this I would argue a lot of this is all by design, uh, especially when you consider that most Silicon Valley uh, corporations uh, today uh, were originally set up with U.S. government money or money from the CIA through NQTEL or something like that, right? Uh, it's really important that we stop seeing Silicon Valley as just a private entity. It's not anymore. It's very intimate, in, intimately connected to the state, not just through how these companies originated, you know, with Google, for example, getting, uh, or Palantir getting CIA money, but a lot of these companies are government contractors and have been for years. Uh, you know, Amazon runs the cloud for the whole U.S. intelligence community, most of the government. Microsoft's going to be running the cloud for the Pentagon, um, Palantir um, is a contractor for most U.S. government agencies, right? So, I mean, they have conflicts of interest with the state, you could argue. So this claim like, oh, that, 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 that they've used for years, oh, Silicon Valley is a private corporation. You can't, um, you know, uh, they can make, they can do whatever they want because they're private. Well, we've gotten to a point where a lot of these companies are so, have, have become so cross-pollinated with the government. I don't really think that's an effective argument anymore. Yeah, and the other interesting thing is that the economic ideology of the left and this idea that everybody on the left, including those in Silicon Valley who back the Democrats, are working on solving this issue of inequality. Oh, it's this big, huge, you know, that is the No, they don't actually care. Right, right. And not not only (laughs) that. solving inequality. And not only that, but the economic – the economic implications of the monetary policy that they all support, um, which essentially is just more money printing. And Trump was guilty of that also, too. But all that does is bifurcate wealth further in the country. So you have somebody like Elon Musk, okay, whose company, you know, at the end of 2019, I think was probably a $60 billion market cap in total that has an accumulated deficit, meaning in terms of their uh, lifetime profit and loss, I think of $5 billion. And Elon Musk's net worth went up something like $140 billion last year. And the same thing is happening with all of the, you know, with Bezos, with Jack Dorsey, with all of these Silicon Valley CEOs. They're seeing their wealth just astronomically rise and that is going to continue that that division of the elites and main street is going to continue uh as a result of modern monetary theory as a result of the you know keynesian kind of road that we're going down now so it's really like a dog chasing its tail to some degree that 
inequality is supposed to be this big driving force behind all of these actions, but uh, either they don't understand what they're doing or they just don't care. They know exactly what they're doing, these people, uh, at least at the national level, like in Congress, uh, the White House, all of that. I think they know exactly what they're doing because they don't work for us. They don't work for the people. They work for the people that have been making bank all last year. And they were, you know, they created those those acts like the, the CARES Act and whatever that they framed as relief for the American people and who benefited and who benefited from those loans programs right. and all of that, right? I mean, it, it, in very few cases, it was... Um, you know, average Americans a lot of time, I mean, just the cronyism is out of control. Both parties are insanely corrupt. And what we really have here are the on, on a global scale right now is that we have the elites the uh, globally playing for keeps against the little people and trying to essentially create a system uh, using coronavirus as sort of a, a springboard for this, uh, for a system whereby the little people can uh, not challenge the power of the elites anymore. Potentially ever, depending on how far uh, you want to go into, you know, the Great Reset type of stuff. But we do know that, like, groups like the World Economic Forum, I mean, those are mostly, like, billionaires, right, that are promoting this Great Reset. Uh, the forward to the Great Reset book written by Klaus Schwab is by Microsoft CEO, right? So they're on board. Um, and then you have, you know, Joe Biden essentially using all the same uh, buzzwords that like Justin Trudeau and all these other global leaders that are part of that are using. So, you know, inequality, right? I mean, the World Economic Forum likes to uh, promote their great reset as being more sustainable and equitable and all the stuff. And, and they say things like you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Well, you know, okay. So it's equitable in a sense for the little people because we all get equally fucked while the elites end up owning everything and then renting it to us and having us basically forced into a new neo-feudal system um, that's built around a lot of this technology that they're trying to put through, whether it's Internet of Things, uh, technology, smart cities. Now we're having people uh, in, in, this, in this circuit talking about the Internet of Bodies, that people need to be mandated to wear wearables to detect COVID-19 uh, before it manifests and stuff like this. I mean, this is just like a walk towards a very dystopian uh, reality. And so a lot of this... Um, rhetoric that you hear, uh, style rhetoric that you hear coming from the World Economic Forum in relation to this, you're also hearing from the political left um, or, you know, the DNC really um, in the U.S. making those same sort of arguments that, oh, this will help equality and this is about sustainability um, and whatever, when in reality you look at those policies and it's not. So um, in 2018, I wrote an article when I was still at Mint Press News, which is generally a left-leaning outlet. Uh, where I really savaged the crowd out of AOC back then. Uh, people didn't like that, that read Mint Press. <laughs> I had a lot of people ask for me to be fired. Uh, but basically what I, I did is I looked at her Green New Deal, right, that a lot of people um, had only, even her supporters, right, had only superficially looked into and were like, yeah, that sounds good, more sustainability, more jobs, whatever. You went If you went and actually read that thing, she was basically talking about the Federal Reserve printing a bunch of money, um, cap and trade, you know, all this, these marketing gimmicks that really have nothing to do with, with what its supporters thought it had to do with. They didn't even read the thing, right? 
And, and so a lot of that stuff is true for these uh, policies being put out by uh, the Democrats and whatever that they claim are going to be more sustainable and more equitable. Um, it's, it's about creating uh, this new system that they're trying to implement, not just in the United States, but in the United Kingdom, in Western Europe, where I live here in Chile, uh, really throughout the world. And, um, you know, basically they're... Uh, manipulating the message and trying to get, you know, these, these people on the left specifically to think that this is the way to solve everything. Right. And that's why you're seeing also COVID and climate change now getting lumped together in narratives and all this other stuff getting lumped together in narratives, uh, trying to sell these solutions to the people because what they clearly want uh, is at least a, a decent fraction of the population to give their consent and support behind this system without knowing what the system really is until we're all stuck in it. And then we can't do anything about it. Right. Right. Exactly. Then it's too late. We've gone from 15 days to slow the spread to turn in your neighbors to the police if they have a gathering of five people or more in really yeah. fucking record time. Just about 12 months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when, when you yeah. look at it like that, you look at where we were a year ago in terms of the what we were allowed to do, just in terms of shopping and traveling and, you know, whatever. And yeah. what we're allowed to do. I mean, we're, we're like fucking caged animals to some degree at this point. And is it any wonder that both sides of the aisle are starting to lash out? I mean, we talked about this this summer. Like, what was driving those protests? It was it was largely attributed to to racial inequality. But I've argued that socioeconomic divide and this being caged in our homes uh, really probably exacerbated things to the nth degree. And that's going to continue. That's going to continue for as long as we're not allowed to, uh, you know. Like I quoted Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting the other day on Twitter. Liberty is the soul's right to breathe, right? People's fucking souls need to breathe. Otherwise, you're going to keep getting results like this. Right. Well, what we have now, especially after Wednesday, is is this push uh, to criminalize dissent. Okay. So all they really have to do now and what they're setting up is be like, oh, this person's a Trump supporter or this person is QAnon or tied to QAnon. Let me tell you something about the mainstream media narrative about QAnon in recent months. They really have been setting up for something with this for a long time. They have tried, well, the Washington Post specifically, but other outlets have basically tried to paint anything uh, that, for example, uh, reporting on the Epstein scandal, being called by mainstream media now uh, the gateway to QAnon. Uh, We have uh, critics of the COVID-19 vaccination program, which, uh, as people should know, is remarkably different um, and has various areas of concern that have never existed in previous national vaccination campaigns. It's very different in, in a lot of ways, but critics of that. Um, are also being labeled QAnon. And people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. from Children's Health Defense or whatever are, are being, you know, essentially labeled by the Washington Post as being related to QAnon when they are, uh, they're not. And, and, you know, a lot of these people that are being labeled QAnon by the, or QAnon linked by these mainstream media outlets um, have denounced QAnon as a PSYOP. So now what we're having is a crackdown after Wednesday on QAnon, Twitter accounts, QAnon content. And it's very interesting that a lot of narratives, very inconvenient for the establishment uh, over the past several months have been uh, that they've 
and trying to tie it to QAnon to basically use QAnon as a giant censorship straw man where they can take down information or take down accounts that are talking about a, a, a particular topic that they deem is QAnon or fueling uh, uh, violence because of conspiracy theories. And also after Wednesday, we had several mainstream media outlets. Um, and I think uh, one that I thought was really uh, blatant was in <clears throat> was in Rolling Stone, and they were basically saying, uh, now we have proof that online conspiracy theories fuel violence in the real world and they need to be stopped, right? So that's not even talking about QAnon conspiracy theories. That's moving it to conspiracy theories in general. And so I think what happened on Wednesday, one of the main purposes of that event was uh, for the next stage of extreme censorship that we're already seeing now, and it's going really fast, and it's not going to slow down. People that think this is going to, like, stop um, no, th th these people have, know how much power they have now. They're going to get even more power on January 20th. And these types of despots, when they get more power, they don't slow down. You know, I mean, just look at history. Yeah, I want to go back to something we mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago that we kind of got off the topic, but I didn't want to forget to ask you about it was I'm guessing you saw the video of the Capitol Police just kind of letting people into the Capitol building. Yeah. During, oh, yeah. uh, during those protests, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that. What was going on there? Yeah, I think, okay, so so let's, let's think about a couple things. Uh, ever since 9-11, uh, and, and you, you can argue, well, well, also some of this was going on before, right? You know, you had ex-military stuff being given to police, all this uh, equipment. Right. high-tech equipment now all these uh, a lot of these big law enforcement agencies like the dc police department gets has a budget of like 600 million dollars a year uh, a lot of them have all of these toys like a lot of them ai based from all these different law enforcement software companies now where they have access um if they're concerned about unrest for example to a lot of federal tools uh, that, of course, surveillance tools that, of course, we know, like since 9-11 are uh, very Orwellian. Uh, companies like Palantir are said to know literally everything about you, uh, in some cases, maybe more than you know about, more about yourself, right? Um, this rally was announced in, like, December. They had weeks to prepare. If you look at the preparation for other events uh, in, in the last 12 months in, in D.C., uh, even even just a couple of uh, days before that rally, there was a the progressive left had their like force the vote demonstration. There were only like there were under a, there were like under fifty people. I think they had like forty people, and they had fifty cops. Right. Um, so what's crazy if you look a lot of the at these videos of what happened on Wednesday, you for example have the video they show of them first breaching that first security fence before they get to the security fence where they're essentially let in by cops. Yeah. Uh, but in that in that case, there's only like three cops on that fence. You're supposed to tell me uh, <laughs> that uh, on that particular because remember too, right before this, Trump said, "Let's go to the Capitol. Let's march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol." Why does D.C. only have three people there? Keep in mind, too, that D.C. isn't just the D.C. police. I mean, it's the heart of the national security state. I mean, it's just it's just uh, if people want to write this off as incompetence, I would uh, call them naive, I think. 
they knew exactly what they were doing. I think a lot of what happened on Wednesday, when you look at how they were let in, yeah. how there was like only one cop inside the building, how when the cops were with the protesters, they were talking and taking selfies and all of this stuff. Um, I, this was clearly, clearly allowed to happen. And the question is, why was it allowed to happen? That is well, a- I would argue a lot of it, we've already talked about the censorship thing and this push for a new war on domestic terror, which ultimately is about dissent, because as you were talking about last Last year, a lot of what happened last summer was arguably fueled uh, by the lockdowns, by the economic crisis. That's just going to get worse. You think this war on domestic terrorists or actual domestic terrorists are for people that oppose uh, a, Bi- a coming Biden national lockdown or something like that in the United States. There won't be any distinction once that system is set up. Okay, but now we have all this fear mongering. And uh, we what we really need to pay attention to um, also is um, what pictures have we been shown over and over again from Wednesday's events? We've been shown specifically pictures of two individuals, podium guy, the guy carrying out that podium, <laughs> right? And, and, and Viking guy, okay? So those are the two people that we've been shown over and over again. Both of those individuals were attending a BLM protests last year. Um, so... That's a little weird that they're being presented as domestic Trump supporting domestic terrorists. Yeah, but in the, the, the photos, the photos uh, one I of saw. Those guys names. Hang on, the, fo- the photos I saw a Viking guy at the BLM protest. He was holding a sign that said "Q sent me." I mean, it, it is possible that both of those guys were oh, at, okay. were, were at BLM protests as counter protesters. Well, it's possible, but the Viking dude is also listed as an actor. Um, he has an actor profile that he right. does voiceovers and all of this stuff. So I'm a little skeptical because you have to keep in mind why those two faces, why are we being shown these two guys over and over and over and over again when there were lots of people in the Capitol? They had photos it's of just Viking very interesting. Dude. They had photos of Viking dude, I think a year or two ago, though, meeting with Rudy Giuliani too. Like at a book signing or something, he's shaking Rudy yes, Giuliani's hand. Yes, and Bernard Carrick. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. But if you look at the photos that are being pushed around on Twitter of those two and people insinuating that they're BLM protesters, uh, the one photo of the Viking no, guy. No, I don't think that. The, the one photo of the Viking guy, he's holding that sign that says Q sent me, but it's cut off at the bottom. So you have to look at the at the full photos. But, yes, I do. Uh, OK, I do think that's worth noting. And I think more importantly is what's going on when the Capitol Police just open the door to those protesters and say, come on in, because that's exactly what happened. The, the question would be, right. who's the guy that opened that door and why did he do it? Right. And, and, and the question here becomes, too, OK, so this is being framed now by people in Congress as sedition, a coup attempt. The freaking cops let them in. That's a coup attempt to you. Like, can we talk about a, a siege of a Capitol building and like history and what that norm, what types of damages and deaths that that causes? Right. There was a woman shot inside the building. So that's technically within the Capitol itself. Not talking about the rally in general, but the Capitol, the siege. A single death, right? I mean, the way it's being framed is like it was this huge battle and this huge insurrection full of people with guns. And there was, you know, I mean, if you think think through the rhetoric they're using to describe Wednesday, uh, there's clearly something else going on here. There weren't any um, buildings. I really want to stress. There weren't any buildings being burned to the ground. 
Nothing was lit on fire in the Capitol. Um, uh, they broke a window that they keep showing that video over again. They right. broke a, a random window, right? And then they forced their way in, but they were really let in, like you were pointing out. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of things to questions here. question here. Uh, there were also people being flagged in. Another thing, a lot of these personalities that were in that crowd, pro-Trump personalities, were allowed to stream within that building when they were in the Capitol, one of them was streaming from Nancy Pelosi's office. If this was really a domestic terror attack as it's being framed now, why not use cell phone jammers? Why allow them to stream from inside? They wanted them to stream. They wanted that to happen. Because other people earlier on in that day during the rally specifically, they were uh, in a specific area and a lot of them were left leaning out, let's actually like status queue and whatever, had their strings cut by jammers So why not use them in the Capitol if they're domestic terrorists? I mean, is this how the U.S. national security state responds to an act of domestic terrorism in the Capitol is by letting people stream on Twitch and crap? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And there's so many other elements here that just don't make don't make any sense. Yeah, I read an article based on the narrative we're being fed now. I read an article yesterday and I don't know whether this is true or not. And I'm just going to paraphrase. But I, I, I think right after the incident, there were calls uh there were questions being raised about oh why wasn't the national guard called in and you know that's trump's fault whatever and then i read an article yesterday that said oh he had wanted them there in advance and i don't know which i don't know what have you heard either of the two sides of that story yeah so there's a couple different things that have come out about that so one was that um the pentagon didn't want to deploy the national guard because they would technically, when deployed in the District of Columbia, would be under Trump's control and, you know, coup attempt, whatever they were, you know, they allegedly declined. And then later they approved it. Um, I mean, it was just a lot of really unusual narratives, and a lot of them are very contradictory. Uh, Later on, we had uh, claims that uh, the Pentagon offered extra help before the event to the D.C. police uh, on several occasions, and the D.C. police declined every time. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not really clear, but I don't, you know, I, I don't think they're going to actually investigate the police involvement. What they're doing is they're going after the people that were let in. And in some cases they were, people were moving their arms, like, come on in, come this way to those people. Um, and now, you know, uh, those are the people being arrested, but you know, we don't even know the name of the shooter of the lady that was shot and died in there. Um, you know, that uh, presumably a police officer hasn't been named. Uh, the people that opened the gates haven't been named. Um, you know, uh, the, the people also, I also think this is super weird. The D.C. police commissioner came out like a day or two ago during a press conference and was like, we need the public's help identifying the faces of these people. Like they don't have the most advanced facial recognition stuff or like surveillance system, phone location data. I mean, I mean, they even have tools where like if you have your hand raised in a picture on Facebook, they can pull off your complete fingerprint set just from that picture. So why do they need members of the public to identify these people? I argued on Twitter the other day that it's because they want people to start getting used to ratting out their neighbors um, or people or their acquaintances or people they know, um, you know, when asked by the state uh, to do so, which of course is something they've been trying to do for a long time. Like DHS's see something, say something program. Now we're getting into a very uh, creepy version of that. And it started last year with COVID too. 
at the same time you have this uh, going on, you have in the UK uh, them trying to convince people that it's a good idea to pace uh, people that snitch on their neighbors for uh, breaking COVID restrictions. <laughs> so this isn't something that's like going on just um, just in the US either. I mean, there's just a lot of things um, going on behind the scenes. And this is already, some people are framing what happened Wednesday, like Senator Schumer called it, like compared it to Pearl Harbor, Cory Booker compared it to the war on 1812. Some people are calling it a 9-11 style event. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's just out of control. It's also worth pointing out, too, that the head of D.C. police at the time um, it used to work for a company that has, like, Michael Chertoff and a bunch of, like, ex-intelligence directors on its board. So it's worth pointing that out when we're talking about this coming push for a war in domestic terror because Michael Chertoff is very... Uh, very involved in that uh, and was also very involved in planning the uh, with groups like the Transition Integrity Project we talked about last time and a lot of these front companies that, that were basically or intelligence uh, agencies that were talking about how the 2020 election uh, is going to be basically the last real election in, in for the U.S. And there's no shortage of useful idiots in this country that have made it their own business to go out and just rat on people and do exactly what it is that you're yeah. talking about the government is encouraging them to do. There's people that look at that yeah. like myself. And I say, well, this isn't really good for anybody. You know, it's just no, it, at, the, at the end of the day, right, we can't have the citizens of the country all turning on each other. We need to trust in each other. We need to respect each other's rights. We need to respect each other's uh, property. And then there is a whole other subsect of people. And I think a lot of this has to do with intellectual snobbery, too. I think you have people that are smart enough to realize that they're smart and think that they have arrived at the terminus for any and all, you know, ideological problems, political issues, that they have the definitive answer, even though when challenged, many of them often do not, clearly. And they cling to those things, and they're going to kind of deliver whatever they need to deliver in order to uh, further an agenda towards whatever it is they believe the solution is. And also, too, I find that these people are very scared, and, and not just politically, not just ideologically, just in general. I think people that are easily frightened, people that haven't made peace... Yeah with life in general, where, you know, the fact that we're born, the fact that we're all going to die, the fact that we have control over some things and we don't have control over other things, outside, even on a, like a larger philosophical uh, argument, just having peace in general in your life. And I find that a lot of the people that are the first ones to get up on a fucking train like this lady did last week and rat out two businessmen because they were sitting there drinking their coffees without a mask on on an Amtrak train and flip it's out ridiculous. And, start, yeah, and start filming it and call the conductor <sighs> and, and all this shit. I mean, those people is worse to me. They're scared oh, all the time, Whitney. They're walking around frightened, and that's their, that's their yeah. default mode. Oh, man, I just have so little respect for someone who voluntarily decides to become a snitch for the state. I mean, just personally, um, there is nothing that that exudes cowardness, cowardice uh, and just like a lack of character than that to me. Um, I mean, it's just so uh, anti-American, really, uh, yeah. and anti-liberty uh, to just be so 
you know, nosy and think that, you know, you're helping by, I don't know. I mean, oh, I could well, read about it's, that. It's, it's a terrible uh, a combination while. of like self-absorption and, it is. and, and, and moral just superiority being frightened. Um, and right. we see that. Yeah. And we see that on the, uh, I would argue on the establishment left a lot in the U S are people that are like, Oh, I'm coming from the moral high ground. Ergo, I am able to, uh, you know, do these things and it's better that I do them and you don't know what you're doing because I know, you know, I mean, that whole type of arrogance and, and smugness, um, you know, tends to be pretty common on the establishment left. I really want to uh, clarify, though, that I'm talking about establishment left, but there's also a lot of people who identify as being on the left that do not fit in this category at all. Right. So I'm mainly talking about like MSNBC habitual watchers, <laughs> uh, people that like love the Democrats and are like, Biden's going to change everything in America and make everything better because the orange man is now gone. You know, like those I'm talking about those types of people. So people don't accuse me later of like throwing everyone uh, under the bus. And if you look- um, but I mean, it's it, it's very <laughs> If you look at a guy like Biden or you look at a Hillary Clinton and you can't see clearly that they are as woven into the fabric of, (laughs) you know, the elites and the in this country, it's the same with the central bankers. You know, Janet Yellen just disclosed as part of her uh, disclosures to be Treasury Secretary, I think, what her speaking fees have been over the last 12 months. Yeah, she made like seven seven million dollars, seven million dollars in speaking fees over the course of a year. You know, if it, if it isn't clear that these people are as woven into the fabric of everything you're, try, you know, supposedly fighting against, if you can't see that, and it's there's people on both sides of the aisle like that. If you're blind to it on both sides of the aisle, you're hopeless. It's just unfortunate, yeah. but you're hopeless. As a country, the U.S. is going to be in deep, deep shit if people don't start to figure out that the issue is the power and political elite and not their neighbor. Right. They are trying to organize a situation where we are constantly accusing the other party or the other political persuasion of being the real threat to liberty, the real threat of democracy, when it is both parties that have been setting this up for more than 20 years right. to, to clamp down on dissent because there has, I mean, with increasing inequality, even before COVID, the, the power apparatus in the United States knew that someday it would reach a point where there would be a populist movement, whether from the left or the right that they could not stop. And then you have Trump and Bernie Sanders and all of this stuff come. I don't like either of them, uh, you know, but basically uh, that's an indication to them that there is this pop, you know, people want change and have wanted it for some time. You know, that's how Obama won originally. And then people saw what Obama really was, right? But there is a desire there among the American populace for real meaningful change in the government, and it's obviously become exacerbated over time, and rightfully so. But, you know, the national security state, the power apparatus in the U.S. government, I mean, they don't think in the short term, they think in the long term, right? And they knew, they've known for decades that a day like that would come to the United States. So for them, the question becomes, how do we maintain our power? Um, How do we make our pieces of the pie equal? even bigger and, you know, keep screwing over everyone, uh, but, you know, uh, basically have them cheer it on, or at least enough of them cheer it on. And I would argue that's where we are now. I I mean, a lot of the stuff that they are fielding now with solutions, whether it's uh, for COVID or quote unquote domestic terrorism or, or whatever, I mean, they've been setting up for a long time.
and now the justifications are here uh, and they're starting, they're going to start rolling it out soon. And if people, I mean, we are at a really critical juncture in the United States right now. Uh, People really have to understand. And, and, And I think it's very possible to reach people on both sides, despite the emotionally charged environment now. You know, this is, we are the elite. I mean, I think even Warren Buffett has said this, that there's a class war and that his class, i.e. the elite billionaires, are winning, right? Um, If you look at what's happened, you know, objectively, uh, over the course of the past 12 months, uh, that has escalated hugely. And it is getting to a point where so many Americans in the coming months are going to be so economically desperate or homeless or something that they will do anything the state says to stay alive if the state offers them assistance or whatever. Um, And that is a really dangerous situation to have at the same time that they're setting up um, a system that will be used to destroy dissent. That domestic terrorism law uh, that that Biden's going to put out now that they're that they're talking about all every time they announce a law like that, they've had it written for months and or years. Right. Which is why I bring up that recent recent Adam Schiff bill. And what's interesting is that the ACLU didn't just say that um, that bill would essentially criminalize all government dissent. It said that even though it was being framed to target the right, the most likely targets would be minorities and environmental activists. And that's the ACLU uh, saying that that's the that's the American Civil Liberties (laughs) Union. Right. 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 So who do you think, I mean, this is going to be used against? It's going to be used against anyone the government or the power structures sees as a threat. So maybe, um, you know. Or people who are dissenting. Mm-hmm. Maybe the ACLU coming out and saying that might wake some people. I mean, I doubt it, but it should wake some people up on the left to exactly what it is that you're saying, which is so much of this, so much of what we're talking about has to do with liberty. And so much of it is not a left versus right argument. It is a citizens versus elites argument. Yeah. I mean, people in the U.S. really need to start being vocal about the fact that regardless of your political persuasion, you have rights. Right. You're supposed to anyway. Um, And what's happening now is that they have been manufacturing consent through various events um, or, or narratives to take those rights away from everyone. And, you know, last year I came on, right, we were talking about the erosion of civil liberties with COVID and all of this stuff and how that ended up playing out. Um, you want to add COVID to a new war on domestic terrorists, <laughs> you, you're, we're not going to have rights in like less than two years. Yeah, well, if, things um, and, keep and that, moving, if they keep moving at the pace that they've moved over the last 12 months, again, how quickly we've yeah. gone from, you know, hey, 15 days to slow the spread to nobody's allowed to do anything. I mean, that is a blistering pace. And now with uh, unilateral control for the most part after January 20th, who the fuck knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I mean, uh, it's really important to pay attention to uh, what the Biden administration is planning and also what some states are planning. For example, 2021, well, this was announced in 2019, so everyone's forgotten about it, but it's still going on. Uh, New York State is going to create, uh, turn five existing cities, including Manhattan, into smart cities which are basically surveillance cities over the course of 2021. Uh, and they're going to be bore, built by foreign tech companies, not by U.S. tech companies. Perfect. 
that's pretty insane, isn't it? Uh, but where's the coverage been on that? I mean, those are basically, I mean, if you actually look at what a smart city is and the Internet of Things is, there's the way they sell it. But Internet of Things, you know, just means all the regular devices that you see around you when you walk in a city, like street lights, are all connected to the Internet and they all have cameras and they all spy on you. Right. They're basically prison cities. And what they want in these cities is for everyone to be on universal basic income, which for all intents and purposes is really a slave wage uh, because they want everything to move, the whole economy to move to AI and automation. So you won't really have a job. Your universal basic income will be your only income for a lot of these people. Uh, Biden's infrastructure plan includes uh, in in urban changing urban transportation flows. We talked about this last year, how that document came out about how they were going to eliminate private car ownership and have a fleet of electric self-driving cars. Uh, That's in Biden's transportation plan. So um, this stuff is escalating really quickly and it's very dangerous. And what's interesting too, we talked about this before, is that a lot of this AI, the introduction of these types of smart cities and AI economies has been framed for years as necessary to counter China um, and compete with China um, by essentially becoming China, right? And um, we are getting- Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And I was saying this, what, like last May and look where we are now. I mean, it's just- surreal yeah is it not clear yet Um, is it not clear yet between what you're talking about with these smart cities between what's going on with the you know uh uh with the protests between uh the censorship i mean we are moving in the direction of china the only difference is china actually produces stuff and the united states doesn't (laughs) yeah well i mean it was set up by that uh it was set up that way uh by the same people or their successors that are doing this crap right now (laughs) uh, to basically hollow out the U S economy and move it all overseas. And, you know, I mean, the, the the destruction of, of American empire uh, is, is something that has been engineered um, and it has been unfolding and now it is escalating. Well, it feels like, Um, it feels like all China has to do is flip a switch. It feels like we're in such a precarious position especially economically yeah. when you when you think about the fact that all the production comes out of China now they've committed going into 2021 I was reading a couple of notes that the Chinese government's committed to consuming more of their own product domestically instead of exporting it they're committed to uh, de-risking they called it monetary and economic policy uh, monetary and fiscal policy, which means you know they're thinking about cutting spending. They're thinking about uh, not being mm-hmm. as reckless in terms of monetary policy. They're going to create the digital yuan, which will probably be the first main digital uh, currency in the world. And if they do something like back that currency with gold and start dumping U.S. treasuries, that's all it would take. Yeah, that's all it would take. That's and, all it takes. And, yeah, and yeah. There, there's nothing. There's nothing stopping them from doing that. There really isn't. Indeed. Mm-hmm. You're right. And meanwhile, what are um, we and- doing? Meanwhile, we're, our country is slowly turning into what their country was, you know, 30 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the situation's unprecedented and unprecedented, and it, it's just, uh, it's honestly surreal. I mean, the fact that the sitting president of the so-called free world is banned from Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which is, his, which is his main form of communication with the public. Um, and, and, and not only that, but they deleted all of his tweets That's on the insane. POTUS account. 
which is like historic. You would argue that that could have political historical value pretty easily, <laughs> right? Uh, that's scary. Historical um, value. And so I, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, historical yeah. so value. I argue you can't that this scrub- censorship. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Whitney. We're, we're no, on a fine. delay. Um, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to interrupt you. <laughs> no, it's okay. Go for it. Oh, I was just gonna say you can't. You can't take the most powerful person in the world for four years and then just start to scrub them from history and pretend like nothing that they did ever existed. Well, I wouldn't say he, I think this is a good indication that the president of the United States is not the most powerful person in the world because look how it's playing out right now. (laughs) What's the real government of the United States? Is it the president? Is he the guy that's really in charge and, and runs everything from the white house or, or um, are there other power structures in the U.S. that get what they want, even if the president doesn't? You know, um, I think this is a good illustration of uh, where does the power really lie in the U.S.? Um, take a look at what's happening right now. It's not the president. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I wanted to end on one topic that I'm not sure if we've discussed before, but that's Bitcoin. And the reason I wanted to bring it up is because I was thinking yesterday, I've been getting a lot of shit from people, Bitcoin advocates, because I'm not, you know, 100% sold on Bitcoin. I'm a hard money, gold and uh-huh. silver type guy. And uh-huh. so a lot of the Bitcoin, rabid Bitcoin fans have it out for the gold people. They think, you know, they're too old school or they're dinosaurs or they just don't get it or whatever. Okay, fine. Putting that aside, what I will say Bitcoin is and the rising price of Bitcoin is, aside from a signal of the reckless monetary policy in this country is it certainly seems Mm -hmm. to be a signal that people want out of the conventional system, whether it's the monetary system, the political system, whatever. Um, What is, what is Bitcoin? How do you think about Bitcoin? Well, um, I think it's one, I think uh, cryptocurrency is one of those things that it really depends on how you use it um, because a lot of people that are supporters of it say that it's a way to circumvent government control on finances, for example. Uh, Relatively recently, the U.S. has uh, tried to introduce, I believe, legislation uh, about Bitcoin that basically would have the U.S. government uh, basically have total control over the whole system. Um, Bitcoin, I think, uh, they will try to destroy it if they cannot control it, but they are clearly moving to, you know, I mean, the Fed has been really open about a push to a digital dollar. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier China and the digital yuan. I mean, there is really a global push to move to a cryptocurrency, but one that's basically like FedCoin or one that's controlled by the bankers, um, not necessarily the the uh, liberatory uh, Bitcoin, uh, you know, that narrative that sort of follows Bitcoin around uh, by its proponents. But I think it, it may be possible uh, for those to use Bitcoin in a way that sort of circumvents those control systems. But it really depends on how um, you use those types of things. So, you know, I'm not an expert on this. You know, this is just my opinion. And I'm only talking about this uh, because you asked. But I think, you know, when there comes an economic clampdown and they want to control the people that use uh, cryptocurrency, the vast majority of people that use cryptocurrency are very dependent or have uh, their their coins or whatever on uh, exchanges that are very susceptible to government intervention. Um, 
Uh, from what I understand, there are ways to basically have like your own nodes uh, to store uh, Bitcoin on pieces of hardware so it's not online. But, you know, for people that, you know, exclusively use something like Coinbase for all in Coinbase wallet or whatever for all of their crypto stuff, um, you know, it, 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 an enterprise like that, like Coinbase, can very easily be brought under the thumb of the U.S. or another government right. if legislation in that particular company is passed. So if you're into crypto because you are trying to evade control systems, you need to be very careful um, about the way in which you do it and the way you set it up, um, in my opinion. Um, otherwise, you know, it's something that the government uh, uh, can clamp down on and not only can clamp down on, but they've already announced their intention to do so at some point in the future. And of course, we are careening towards economic calamity in the U.S. and also globally on the dollar is going to collapse, and it's very possible that multiple currencies will collapse um, over the course of probably this year. Um, so, you know, when that happens, obviously you would think that that gold and Bitcoin uh, and things like that would surge, and that's possible, but, you know, they know this moment is coming, and it's very possible they will try and clamp down or manipulate uh, those markets in the lead-up to that event or during, afterwards, whatever, or, you know, try and exert control over it. You know, just like, um, you know, this has happened in U.S. history before with gold, too, like demanding that gold be uh, given to the U.S. government at a certain price that wasn't the market price and things like that, right? So it's very possible that the U.S. government could do that both with uh, physical gold and cryptocurrency. And that's why, you know, um, I tend to be of the opinion that if you want to invest in something right now, one of the best things you can invest in, in my opinion, um, is land so that you're capable of feeding yourself and your family, depending on how crazy this stuff gets. Yeah, you and George Gammon. George Gammon says the same exact thing. And you guys are two of the smarter people that I know. And so it's interesting to hear you arrive at those conclusions <laughs> on, on Bitcoin, uh, well, though. Thanks. Because that's something that I've argued about Bitcoin and part of the reason I'm not 100% sold on it. And you have all these people out there that are like, well, they put 100% of their net worth into it. And hey, many of them have made a shitload of money. And and I will yeah, hand sure. that to them, right? But that that is not a uh, – it's not going to be an indicator of how things are going to end up in the long run. And I guess, again, as with many of my disconnects from the investing world – the problem is I'm looking at a different time horizon. And for me, it just just does seem too easy for the government to, if not completely usurp Bitcoin, make it so that it is impossible to transact or it can, you know, or make it heavily regulated um, or something like that. And it's going to wind up being competition for all these digital currencies. And so until the central yes. banks start holding it in reserve the way they hold gold in reserve then I, I can't look at it the same exact way. If that adoption happens, then we'll talk about it. Well, Chris, you'll have missed the boat, everybody will say to me. Hey, you know what? That's fine. It, it's a risk tolerance question. And you arrived at many of the same issues that I have, and we've never really even discussed it before. So, Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the biggest issue that faces a lot of Bitcoin supporters or investors is complacency. Um, the less complacent you are, probably the better off you're going to be. Um, but, you know, I tend to agree that, like, probably now and the next couple of months, uh, the first quarter of this year, probably a good time to invest some in, in cryptocurrency. But that regulation is going to come. I mean, why would Facebook um, or the you know, make their own cryptocurrency? Why would uh, the Fed uh, explore uh, research and develop and set up the foundation for their own 
cryptocurrency, uh, you know, because they know that, like, if they just let Bitcoin loose or, or these other coins that are around, you know, people are going to favor those because they're not tied to, um, you know, the Fed or Facebook or whatever. So obviously those groups at some point will want to use uh, the power of the power structure they are a part of to try and benefit their uh, currency over competitor currencies. Um, and we were already seeing the state moving in that direction. So it is, uh, you know, uh, complacency. Don't be complacent about this stuff and try and figure out if you have crypto, how to set up um, your holdings so that they just can't be uh, completely taken from you uh, by the government, depending on what legislation's passed. Um, and there's different ways of doing that. But like I said, I'm not an expert on this, but I do know, for example, you can get like these hardware things where you physically basically have it um, in a sense uh, compared to having it stored online at an exchange that can be regulated at any point. Right. Right. Yeah. Like a, like a deep freeze type module. Listen, Whitney, I know we're both on a hard stop this morning. I want to thank you so much for taking uh, an hour and a half out of your Saturday morning to talk to me. And I know many of my viewers are stoked to hear from you. Um, so if you want to just uh, give a shout out to whatever it is you're working on now and where people can find you, and then we'll uh, we'll call it a day. Sure. So um, you can my website right now that I am uh, producing for is unlimitedhangout.com. And I also continue to uh, write and work. Uh, for The Last American Vagabond, which was deplatformed from YouTube, by the way, so you probably won't find it there, but it's on all other all other platforms. And, of course, the website, thelastamericanvagabond.com, and my website, Unlimited Hangout, is unlimitedhangout.com. Uh, you can support my work on Patreon or Rockfin. Supporting either on Patreon or Rockfin, you get access to my podcast. Um, my podcast and video content that I produce personally, not necessarily my interviews, um, you can find on my Rockfin channel. Um, I'll be doing a, a monthly live stream on there. And also um, I do about two podcasts a month. Um, and uh, yeah, that's basically, that's basically it. I mean, I'm on Twitter for now, but um, you know, I recently, if you go down my timeline a little bit, I posted um, a link to all of the other platforms I'm on in the event I get deplatformed. I did not sign up for a parlor account uh, because that is backed by the same people that set up um, uh, Breitbart and some other things. It's also if they wanted to host a, a, a you know a, a free speech social media thing, they chose to host it on Amazon Web Services, the same cloud as the CIA. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I just find it to be um, a little silly. So given what we're seeing with Twitter now, um, I think it's very possible uh, that Parler uh, may uh, have an ulterior motive. But it's also being deplatformed uh, from like Google Play and now the Apple App Store. So, um, you know, I'm not on there, but you can follow me on Telegram um, and uh, Mastodon and some of these other uh, Twitter alternatives or other social media things, um, you know, if you want to keep up with my work. Because I won't be on, I don't think uh, many of us will be on Twitter much longer, depending on how this progresses. Yeah, it certainly doesn't look good. But for the time being, glad to have you on. Thank you so much for your time, Whitney, and hope we get to talk again soon. All right, sounds good. Thanks again. All right, take care. That was the one, the only Whitney Webb of The Last American Vagabond, unlimitedhangout.com. Check her out. There was a little bit of interference connection issues, but we had problems getting connected this morning, so I apologize for the audio quality. Hopefully you could hear everything good enough. I'll do my best to try and edit it uh, a little bit if I can, but I could hear her decently enough. And <clears throat> important conversation. Very glad we had it today and uh, stoked to get it to you guys. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. For right now, I am out. Peace.